Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Baby I Love Your Way. Written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Peter Frampton, who included it on his record-breaking double LP, Frampton Comes Alive. The legendary singer, songwriter, guitarist, and inductee into the Musicians Hall of Fame will join us in a few moments to chat about his multifaceted career, from classic rock radio to Grammy-winning instrumental composer. Part 1 well, Scott, are you still uh, still on lockdown? I, I, I'm assuming everybody is, but I thought maybe it was just my family. <laughs> oh, you didn't get the word that we're all allowed to go uh, back to normal life now. You've been you've been holed up with your kids all this time. Are you at a party right now? <laughs> you, I, I thought I sent you an evite. This is my worst nightmare. <laughs> Literally, the whole world is doing something I'm not doing. No, we are uh, we are hunkered down. My uh, my wife spent a good portion of the weekend planting more seeds, uh, so we are in the farming life as much as uh, <laughs> as can happen in Los Angeles. Wow. Um, so yeah, we're we're like full on ready for zombie apocalypse over here. Well, we will be when our crops start coming in. So, <laughs> so give us a few weeks. I was about to say <laughs> having having some seeds in the ground uh, does not necessarily make you ready for the zombie apocalypse. Um, <laughs> Unless you're growing chainsaws. <laughs> but uh, I, I applaud yeah. you guys for that. We're not doing anything like that at all. We're just like uh, mowing through the food we have in the house and um, <laughs> just uh, watching a lot of children's TV. That's that's w- what we spend our time doing when I'm not in here working. So, um, you yeah, know, that sounds that sounds like, uh, you know, its own special kind of preparation for the zombie apocalypse. It's its own apocalypse. Let's just say that children's <laughs> uh, a day full of children's TV is its own zombie apocalypse. Well, uh, in, in these times when we're uh, confined um, for the most part to our own homes, definitely a good time for those uh, who are not uh, continually bombarded by children's programming to uh, find a little alone time for reading. Um, yep. And uh, we've been talking for a couple episodes now about a listener um, named Blake Brewer who contacted us a few episodes back and he asked if we had recommendations for books about songwriting and the craft of songwriting and we decided to put the question out to uh, all our listeners um, to ask them what they liked um, if there were books that were particularly helpful and we were able to put together a a nice little list uh, based on um, the responses of you our listeners Um, we also said uh, to have people send us a message via our website at songcraftshow.com to let us know why they needed uh, these books that we were we were going to give away as part of this thing. So, yep. Um, in case you hadn't been keeping up with that, what we had said was um, we've got a couple books. One is by Lamont Dozier, um, who has been a guest here on this show, Motown legend, um, and then the other is by Al Kasha. Um, who is a, I think, multi-Academy Award-winning songwriter who's written several songs 
uh, I'm sorry, written several books about songwriting. Um, over He's also the written of his several career. songs. Yeah, he has he has written a few songs. Yeah. That's how he got those Academy Awards. Um, but the last book that I wrote about songwriting is called The Ultimate Book on Songwriting, which feels like that's his final statement. I think <laughs> on uh, on songwriting that sounds <laughs> sounds pretty intense. Right. Um, so anyway, we said we would give away a copy of Lamont's book, a copy of Al's book, both former Songcraft guests, both guys who know what they're talking about when it comes to uh, to songwriting. But we had asked people to write in and tell us why they needed them. And, and I said, hey, you know, send bad lyrics, send bad songs, uh, basically make us laugh. Yeah. And, uh, and and whatever we like the best, whichever entry we think is, is uh, the best one, we'll get the books. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, Blake Brewer was the guy who who started this whole thing. He, it was his idea to to ask about you know recommendations. So because of that, uh, we're gonna send Blake a copy of the Lamont Dozier book, um, and then for our contest winner, we're gonna send a copy of the Lamont book and the Al Kasher book. But I want to read to you, Paul, because you have not seen this yet, and I wanted you to react to the winning entry in real time. <laughs> All right, uh, the winner of our contest is a fellow named Lou Altman. And uh, this is Lou's message of why he should be the winner of these books. He says, I am in dire need of these books. I cannot send you my worst song because they are all very bad and I don't want to risk exposing you to lyrics so offensive it may sour your views of the music industry <laughs> and cause you to end your podcast, which I find invaluable. <laughs> Even my mother, who has praised me my whole life so much, genius this, wonderful that, that my middle brother still beats me up on a regular basis. She has <laughs> told me my songs are terrible. I can't sing or play guitar well. My singing coach fired me. I've gotten the hook at open mic contests. Okay, here's a typical stanza to my songs. <laughs> what can this misanthrope do? Existentially, I'm kind of screwed. What? So you see, my need for these books is quite urgent. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's Lou, Lou Altman? Lou Altman has won the contest. He is wow. getting the Lamont book and the Al Kasher book. Can I just first of all congratulate you, Lou, on um, maybe having the best season of your life right now as a misanthrope? You don't have to see anyone. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I hope you're enjoying that, um, if, if, that's, if that's an autobiographical song there. Um, but then I also <laughs> want to just offer my condolences on, on the lack of support here from your mother when it comes to your <laughs> your songwriting uh, endeavors. Um, but I yeah, I, I feel I feel pretty comfortable sending these books to Lou. Um, <laughs> I, he, he has uh, he has some ability to communicate, um, which he's expressed just in that letter. And I'd like to see him be able to channel that into actual songwriting. So. Um, I'm, I'm yes. good with this. Yeah. So, uh, Lou and Blake, we will send your books, uh, when I figure out how to send books without risking my life, uh, <laughs> to go to the post office. Um, but know that these books are earmarked for you. Uh, like Amazon, we are still here to serve you. It might just take a little longer than it does usually. Um, but we will get you your books and, uh, thank you, Blake for raising the question. Thank you listeners for submitting some great suggestions on music related books. Thank you to everyone who submitted uh, some very funny uh, responses of why they needed the books and congratulations Lou. And and Lou, if uh, if Scott can't figure out a, a good way to send those books, uh, he will call you and read them aloud to you over the phone. <laughs> so, I will I will I will call your mother and read them to her and she can tell you about them. <laughs> 
I I think it's still <laughs> offensive to tell somebody I, I'll call your mother. I uh, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds threatening. Yeah. You're in, you're in trouble, Mister. Um, <laughs> hey, well, uh, we've been sort of uh, threatening what we're going to do today, but n- not in terms of a bad thing. We've been sort of teasing it. We've been letting people know, hey, there's a big episode coming, um, and today is that day. Today is the day that the episode comes alive. Hey, nice. Nicely done. Um, and we hope that you feel like we do uh, when you listen to the episode. <laughs> How's that? Oh, baby, I love your way. <laughs> Peter Frampton, Too man. far. Like the yeah right yeah like I I mean how often do you uh, get to have an interview with someone who's been on The Simpsons? <laughs> <laughs> if that's the benchmark, I think we've achieved that's new heights, my is. friend. Anyway, and with well, that, <laughs> on on that note, let's jump to this uh, to this amazing conversation with um, a guitar icon, a cl- hero of classic rock, and also a exceptionally notably nice guy, the great Peter Frampton. Part two. Singer, songwriter, producer, and the legendary guitarist Peter Frampton launched his music career in the UK while still a teenager. He gained notoriety playing with the bands The Herd and Humble Pie before embarking on a solo career and reaching stratospheric commercial heights with the release of his now-classic Frampton Comes Alive album. The double LP spawned the hit singles Show Me The Way, Baby I Love Your Way, and Do You Feel Like We Do, which led to Peter's highest charting hit single I'm In You from the follow-up studio album of the same name. He would go on to score additional self-penned hit singles with I Can't Stand It No More, Breaking All the Rules, Lying, and Day in the Sun. In recent years, he has continued to explore a wide range of projects, from Fingerprints, his Grammy-winning album of instrumentals, to Hummingbird in a Box, his collection of songs commissioned for the Cincinnati Ballet. Over his multi-decade career, Frampton has collaborated or recorded with David Bowie, George Harrison, Bill Wyman, Ringo Starr, Jerry Lee Lewis, Stevie Nicks, Billy Preston, members of Pearl Jam, and others. The Grammy winner was inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame, and his Frampton Comes Alive LP was named among Rolling Stone Magazine's 50 Greatest Live Albums of All Time. Peter, welcome to Songcraft. Nice to be with you. You know, I'd like to start off today talking about your 2006 album, Fingerprints, which won a Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Album. It closes with a song you collaborated on with John Jorgensen called Souvenirs de Nos Pérez. I hope I said that right. Uh, Memories of Our Fathers. That's a real nod to Django Reinhardt. Um, and with a title like that, I'm curious if your father uh, really was a music fan and if he introduced you to gypsy jazz. Yes. Um, my father did introduce me to Django Reinhardt and gypsy jazz, um, the Hot Club de France with uh, Django and Stefan Grappelli. Basically, the first two albums we had, one was for Mum and Dad, which was best of, you know, uh, Django and, and Stefan Grappelli with the Hot Club. And um, that was their album. And my album was The Shadows, 
uh, Cliff mm. Richard's backup band, who were a huge success. So I wanted to be the lead guitar player of The Shadows. And so I would put my album on and listen to it and try and learn some licks from it and stuff. And then I would finish, and then my dad would put on Django Reinhardt. Hmm. And I couldn't get out of the room quick enough. It was just <laughs> awful. Um, and I, I don't know um, uh, how long it took me, but basically the more times it happens the closer I stayed to the room where Django was playing. Hmm. I got halfway up the stairs, then a couple of steps up, and then gradually I, I stayed in the room for, for, both, for both albums yeah. <laughs> and realizing that um, Django Reinhardt was probably, you know, I didn't know at, the, at that time, but we know now he's probably one of the, if not the best guitarist ever, you know, as far as his dexterity his feel and and everything about the the style that he pretty much invented and then that became so the first two guitar players that I really had this immense love for was Hank Marvin with his red Stratocaster and Django Reinhardt with his acoustic Selma McAfee guitar hmm. and music was filling the house wow so how did you first get into, you know, you're being exposed at least to these two records, you're soaking up some early influences. How did you first get into becoming a musician and, and playing music of your own? Well, again, my father and I were um, going up into the attic to get down our uh, suitcases for our summer holiday um, that year, probably 1957 when I was seven. I'm no good at math, so it's really good I'm born on a zero year. Um, so um, we're, we're up in the attic. So I noticed this little tiny leather case, and I said, what's that? And it looked like an instrument uh, of some sort in there. Um, but my dad got it out, and he said, this is what your grandmother was given. Uh, it's a banjo It's a banjo-shaped ukulele. Hmm. And these were used um, uh, in vaudeville days, because sometimes uh, theaters didn't have pianos or they were just so out of tune it wasn't worth it. Right. So um, the artists like George Formby would, would, would learn to play um, ukulele, banjolele, so they had some form of uh, accompaniment. Right. And so that's where it came from. A friend of hers was, uh, was in vaudeville and, and gave her one, you know. So I ended up with it, and um, that first day we got it down from the attic I asked my dad to show me a couple of uh, chords which he did and then I proceeded to get taught by him hang down your head Tom Dooley she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes and uh, one other I can't remember huh. um, <laughs> oh Michael row the boat <laughs> right <laughs> the standards and um, <laughs> come the next year um, 1958 I was eight um, uh, Father Christmas brought me uh, my first uh, acoustic uh, steel string guitar. And of course, you're of the generation where when you were a kid, rock and roll was just exploding. Um, and even though he was a bit older than you, I understand that, that you and David Bowie went to school together and, and bonded pretty early on over your shared love for, for rock music. Talk a bit about your memories of, of David from your school days. 
Well, David um, was in a band called the Conrads before I actually went to the school. My father was the head of the art department there, and Dave was um, in his class for three years um, doing the art course. And um, so a year before I went to the school, uh, or a couple of years, um, I went on a weekend to the school. We had a, a, a school fair where we, they were, you know, raising money for whatever to do with the school. And um, I remember looking up on the steps, the main steps to go up to the uh, main entrance to the school, um, there was this band playing. And on the end, I, I noticed this guy immediately with the sort of a marine cut uh, hair, but longer, and it, stuck, uh, it was standing straight up. <laughs> and um, he was playing sax, and um, and singing. He was the main singer and actually played saxophone too. Interesting. So they did instrumentals as, as well as vocals. And so I said to my dad, Dad, who's that? And he said, oh, that's, that's David Jones. Um, he's in my art form. I said, oh, wow. Well, Dad, let me tell you, I want to be him. <laughs> so it was it was very early that was instant you know yeah so um i'm probably 11 at this time 11 almost 12 a couple of years later i i went to the school i was about 13 and uh, dave was about uh 14 or 15 or something like that and um i at the first lunch hour i made a beeline for dave um, <laughs> um, and of course we hit it off straight away and there was George Underwood who was Dave's best friend till, till the very end who's also a dear dear lifelong friend of mine who did the Ziggy Stardust cover but um, so it was the three of us and then my dad said well you know you guys really like playing guitar why don't you bring your guitars to school and stick them in my office um, and then at lunchtime, you can get them out and jam. You know, I don't think he used the word jam, but um, play. Right. <laughs> play that rock and roll stuff. Um, and um, so we used to sit on the art block stairs and um, they would teach me Buddy Holly numbers and I'd teach them Shadows numbers. And it was just, you know, uh, show and tell musically. And I learned a lot from, I learned about Buddy Holly from them. Yeah, from wow. Dave and, and George. So it was the three musketeers, <laughs> musketeers. <laughs> right. um, kind of continuing that theme of uh, a, a young life full of future music legends, I've read that when you were still pretty young, Bill Wyman became an early mentor to you. And I, I'd like to hear kind of what role he played in your development uh, in terms of giving you chances to further your musical opportunities. Yes, well, um, Dave had been working in a shop in Bromley called Vic Furlongs and he was Vic was uh, just the owner of this little music shop sold singles and guitar strings I think that was it and a couple of guitars and uh, Dave's job was to sell the singles and keep the guitars clean so well Dave had had enough of it so he said to me look I'm going to leave Vic's I'm, uh, do you want to take over my job I said, oh, yeah, I'd love that. So Dave, Dave gave me my first job. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And um, so anyway, so um, then I moved to this other place, Robertson's in Beckenham. And um, this, this one day, uh, Tony Chapman of The Herd w- was coming in. Now, Tony had already been in the Rolling Stones. He was the original drummer of the Rolling Stones. And um, 
he and Bill went to school together, and they needed a bass player. So Tony brought in Bill. Um, well, at a certain point, uh, they were starting to get gigs as the Rolling Stones, and um, they played um, a place in London that uh, I don't think got along. The promoter didn't get along with, with Tony Chapman very well. Uh, something happened anyway. And so the promoter said to Mick and Keith and Brian, probably, um, I'd like to give you a residency, you know, through the summer on a Saturday night or whatever it was, whatever night. And they said, there's just one thing. And I said, what's that? He said, not with that drummer. So <laughs> unfortunately, uh, Tony was, was uh, replaced, obviously, uh, by Charlie. And, but Bill always felt this, um, uh, he owed him a huge favor. Um, and so he came in to the shop and um, Tony came in and said, look, I'm forming this band. We're going to record and Bill Wyman's going to produce it. He said, would you, would you like to join um, the, the, the band? I'm calling it The Preachers. And I said, yeah, the only thing is I'm still at school. So he said, oh, it's all right. We're all semi-pro. Everybody's got jobs, so it'll only be weekends. So mom, I was able to get that past mum and dad okay. So that was my first sort of semi-pro gig. And... Um, Within a, a couple of months, we were in this van going uh, on our way up to London. We stopped in uh, Penge, uh, where Bill lived, over a gas station, an apartment over a gas station, in the, <laughs> the big band, the Rolling Stones, living in an apartment over a gas station. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't make a lot of money in those first days. Right. <laughs> and um, so anyway, we picked, we picked up Bill. And um, you could hear a pin drop because we were all like mouthing, we've got a rolling stone in the front seat. You know, <laughs> it was all very exciting. And so we get up to the studio and, and uh, Bill pro um, uh, was producing two sides um, and um, it got released. It didn't do anything, obviously. But at that time, the Rolling Stones had a, a special um, uh, on TV. It was Ready, Steady, Go, which was our our very famous, apart from Top of the Pops, very famous uh, uh, music show each right. Friday night. This particular show, the Stones had all um, uh, chosen who they would like to be on. So Man From Man was on. Um, all, all these great bands were on there. And, and Bill chose us because he'd produced us and he thought it would be a good uh, TV promo for us. You bet. <laughs> right. So... Um, yeah, that, that day I saw the Stones do Satisfaction for the first time um, live. <laughs> wow. And um, uh, after the show, um, it was the only one that was taped because it was a special and they wanted to do some fancy editing on it. But most of them were live. Yeah. So we went up into the director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, was the director, American director. And we went up into his office and they fed the VTR, the video, to us in his office, and we watched the show. And I'm standing in between Mick and Keith, and <laughs> all these, and Manfred Mann, and all these, and the rest of the Rolling Stones. And I have to say that I, 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 we were all standing so close, I couldn't, couldn't even pinch myself. But, <laughs> but um, it was just an amazing time to be, there I am, 
in this room watching me while the Rolling Stones are watching me (laughs) in my band, you know, as well as me watching them, you know. So it was um, probably, if your mind can get blown that early, I think it was. We're only a few questions into this interview and my mind is already blown with that story. Well, I think you were, you mentioned the herd. Um, I I think you were still about 16 or so when you became the lead singer and guitarist of the herd, which had a a few successful singles in the UK. Um, But the only herd single I'm aware of on which you were a writer was Sunshine Cottage, which you wrote with bandmate Andy Bound. Talk about how you first got into writing songs of your own and what your early models were in terms of understanding song structure and and how to craft a piece of music for the pop and rock world. Um, Well, I think just like everybody else, I hadn't got a clue, Um, (laughs) except I knew what I liked to hear, you know. So uh, we had, Andrew Bowne and I had started a songwriting partnership and he was much more prolific than I was at that time and probably still is. <laughs> and, um, but, but we had one of those sort of, um, uh, uh, John and Paul deals where whoever wrote it didn't matter. We just were, were a team, you know? Yeah. And, um, so, um, yeah, I had started writing, uh, probably when I first started playing guitar and I, hmm. I remember I wrote a song, um, when I was probably only eight or nine years old, I no no cassette player, no nothing. I can't remember it. Um, you know, I just remember that it had something about water in it, like traveling waters or something like that. Huh. And um, my mom helped me with the lyrics. And um, uh, yeah, so I started writing very early. Um, and I think my my model... My first model was Instrumentals by The Shadows. So I started writing, as in the band I was in at the time, it was called The True Beats. Um, and I was um, probably 11 or 12, and um, between 10 and 12, I think, in that band. And then um, we would do Shadows songs, we would do... Elvis songs, we do Roy Orbison's stuff, um, or, or uh, Everly, but whatever. Uh, but we did, The Shadows were still huge at that time, 62. Yeah. You know, we did a lot of Shadow stuff, but I was writing my own instrumentals, so we would do those as well um, as the instrumentals by The Shadows. So, yeah, as far as um, Sunshine Cottage, uh, uh, that was the first song that we had written after we had um, uh, removed ourselves from our present management and um, just organization. We were being screwed financially somehow. We didn't know who was doing it, so we got rid of everybody Hmm. (laughs) and um, then decided that we were going to do... uh, We re-signed with Phillips Fontana and Label and started doing an album and, of course, a single, and Sunshine Cottage was the first 
single from from what was going to be that album, but it never came out. Hmm. You know, you eventually left The Herd and formed Humble Pie, which included Steve Marriott, who just left Small Faces, and you guys collaborated on the title track of the band's first album, As Safe As Yesterday Is, and the Rolling Stone review of that album is one of the, one of the earliest uses of the term heavy metal to describe music. And it's kind of easy to look back in retrospect and, and, and see what it all became. But when you were starting that out, what kind of aesthetic were you going for as a songwriter at the very start of Humble Pie? Um, we were basically uh, very democratic in, in, our, um, in everything, really. If someone brought in a song that we liked, we did it. Um, if someone brought in a song that Steve thought he had another part for, we did it. If Steve brought in a song, we thought we had a part. We did so. It was it was very much a mix and match at that point. And um, as safe as yesterday is uh, was um, uh, definitely a, a piece that I had and a piece that Steve had, and we just sat down together and uh, uh, pieced it together, really. And um, uh, Steve helped me with the lyrics on that. And uh, yeah, it was. Um, that was the first one we ever sat down and wrote together. So there wasn't so much a, a guiding uh, principle so much as it was, hey, let's just throw things against the wall and, and see what sticks. Yeah, that's pretty much me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, You know, the thing is, I've often said, um, when someone told me one day, you don't have a chorus in this song, I thought, hmm, really? I don't? Oh, I guess I don't. <laughs> but but I liked it the way it was, you know. Right. Um, before I learned that you had to have, well, not not really, but the, the, to write a song, you needed an intro, a verse, um, a B section to the verse to build up to the chorus, and then a reintro, and then all over again. And all, I never had a clue about that, you know. Huh. I just thought, well. I mean, some of my songs have two two bridges. Early songs have two bridges and no chorus, right. and so I get. I guess the bridge ended up being the chorus. Huh. I mean, even the song on uh, uh, "Comes Alive," uh, "Go to the Sun," doesn't really have a chorus. Right, <laughs> it has lots of bridges. Right. Right. <laughs> so I've often cursed the day someone told me how to write a song. Right. Right. <laughs> um. Well, you know, I think people often think of Humble Pie as a, a hard rock band, but you wrote a couple songs on the second album, Town and Country, um, Take Me Back and Only You Can See, which are more rootsy, kind of actually remind me of, of something that Grateful Dead might have recorded in that era.
It seems you've always been a, a versatile musician and a writer with a wide range of interests. Um, did you feel in that era that you had to work to kind of keep from being pigeonholed as exclusively a, a hard rock guy? Um, no, not, not, not really, because I think that while I was with Humble Pie, um, we all ran the gamut of music that we loved, and it was from acoustic guitar and voice to Buffalo Springfield on 10, you oh, know, yeah. at the time. Right. <laughs> uh, right. We loved Buffalo Springfield. And um, uh, so um, whether it was a, an acoustic thing or a heavy rock thing, didn't matter. I, I loved it all. So, you know, people think, well, no, Steve wrote all the heavy stuff and you wrote the acoustic stuff. No, that's not true. Yeah. So, um, and he wrote a lot of the acoustic stuff too. We both did. We right. were both, we both liked it all. He liked country. Um, I, I didn't like country as much as he did at that <laughs> time. But, uh, so we really did, it was not just rock and roll or acoustic. It was R&B. It was uh, everything in between. Right. Right. Speaking of your versatility, I know you worked as a session musician. You were backing up a variety of other artists in the studio. I'd love to know about some of the memorable folks that you played for and how, how working with a range of artists kind of kept your own creative juices flowing. Um, well, when I first started doing sessions, it was s sort of by accident. Um, um, <laughs> I, I, I had a dear friend, have a dear friend, um, Terry Doran, um, who was had been um, John Lennon's uh, personal and then ended up being uh, George's personal. Um, so I met him in Wardour Street in, uh, um, in the, the Chasse, I think it was called, was the, the little club bar there. And um, so uh, he said one day, uh, you know, um, George is recording down the street. Do you want to come and meet him? I said, George who? And he he goes, uh, Harrison. I, I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. <laughs> He's recording at Trident. We're on Wardour Street. And it was literally a block and a half, wow. if that, away from where we were. And so he brings me to the studio. I walk in and there's George standing behind the console. And he looks up and he goes, hello, Pete. Um, and, um, <laughs> that's when I, <laughs> I thought Pete Townsend had walked in behind me, you know? <laughs> so, um, but, uh, no, he knew me because I was obviously had been in the herd and humble pie. So he watches top of the pops too, wow. I guess. <laughs> right. So anyway, he came over to me and, um, it was, a uh, it was very, very nice. Always a nice man. And, and he said, do you want to play? So I said, yes, okay. <laughs> so um, we go down into the studio, Trident. The studio room is below. The control room's up top. And uh, so went down to the studio, and I look around, and there's all these, this Nicky Hopkins playing piano and uh, Klaus Vorman playing bass. Barry Morgan was playing drums on that first session, huge session player also humble pie had recorded in his studio morgan which is where we did town and country hmm. and um so uh there's all these incredible players down there and um george gives me his uh, now very famous this red 
uh, Les Paul that had been reco- recolored, repainted, and um, <clears throat> had a had, has a history. And um, so I put it on and and started playing very quietly. Um, this is the Beatles lead lead guitarist here I'm not going to overstep my bounds so we start playing it after he shows me the chords so I uh, we start playing the track and I'm playing rhythm and uh, I get about a third of the way through the song and George stops everybody says no 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 I don't want you to play rhythm I want you to play lead so um, now I'm completely blown wow So in the end, I, that was the, the track we were doing ended up being the first single oh. and I was playing all the lead work. So wow. it was, uh, uh, it's hard to put it into words that, you know, that who would have thought that waking up that morning, right. you know, right. so, uh, so anyway, then, you know, he called me back and said, um, you know, please come and play on the rest of the album. And so I think I played on, I don't know, five, six, seven tracks on the record and and of course the next session wasn't Barry Morgan on drums it was Ringo oh, so, wow. uh, so there we have it um, wow. so I, I, I made great friends of all these people um, and uh, it, it was pretty amazing and then it led on to All Things Must Pass with George and Billy Preston and uh, Ringo again and Klaus and uh, Gary Wright and then from that, um, I uh, Harry Nielsen called me up and said, I'm hearing great things about you. Can you come and play on my record? So I ended up playing with Harry. And then wow. John Entwistle called me up, and I'd been I'd toured with The Who a few times with The Herd, and, and I knew him well. He said, can you come and play a track for me? So, yeah, it was, it was a very exciting time for me, and that was sort of a, coming to the end of, Humble Pie and um, the beginning of my solo record. Well, after a couple more albums with Humble Pie, you released your debut solo album, Wind of Change, in 1972, featuring the single It's a Plain Shame. about how making that first record as a solo artist um, was different in terms of your approach to the writing process now that you're, you know, it's you standing on your own, not part of a band situation. Yes. In, in instantly being a solo artist uh, made me uh, realize that, you know, it was all up to me. I could do whatever I wanted. And... Um, it was a very exciting period for me. Um, I had at least a half to three quarters of an album written when we started recording. I had to wait for... Um, uh, Chris Kimsey was uh, my engineer, and he was also... I knew him because he was the uh, Glenn John's assistant with Humble Pie. Hmm. And so uh, he Glenn was throwing him out of the nest and said, you're ready to become an engineer now. So, and I was thrown out of Humble Pie's nest. No, I threw myself out. <laughs> <laughs> and we we, just, we met on an airplane uh, going from uh, New York to London, I think. 
And uh, I told him I wanted to do a, my own record. And um, he said, well, you know, I'm ready to do my first album as an engineer. So we had to wait because he was still doing sessions with, uh, with Glenn, finishing off stuff. And so sometimes we would record at very strange hours. Um, <laughs> but basically, I think it took uh, about um, six months, over a six-month period, we did all, all of that. And um, may may have been shorter, but it seemed to be quite a long time. <laughs> Your second solo album, Frampton's Camel, it featured the song, Do You Feel Like We Do? Your fourth album, Frampton, featured songs like Show Me The Way and Baby I Love Your Way. And even though the Frampton album was certified gold... Nothing could quite parallel the second wave of exposure that came when the live versions of all those songs became hit singles from the Frampton Comes Alive album in 1976. That, of course, was the best-selling album of the year, certified eight times platinum, which is just, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. I don't think anyone can anticipate that kind of phenomenon. But you know, when, when you made a live record at this point, was there any sort of gut feeling that this album was going to be a game changer for you? We knew from the way things had worked with Humble Pie that Frampton Comes Alive was probably going to be a bigger, our bigger seller, could have possibly been my first gold record because Frampton hadn't gone gold at this time. Um, it had done about 300,000 copies before we released Comes Alive. And um, so, uh, yes, uh, had no idea, uh, apart from the fact that uh, Humble Pie had done Rock On, which was their fourth um, album, and uh, we had definitely um, got a, a huge following from that record. It was building, but that record made a huge difference. And so everyone said, well, why don't we do a live album and give them what they want? You know, and that's, that was why we made that decision. And because um, hmm. we were touring so much, our audience um, was bigger than our record sales. So um, uh, our fans... So um, the same thing happened to me with the Frampton record. It was the first one that sold more than all the others put together. And um, we didn't even say the word, I don't think. We just went, uh-huh, it's time. So we decided that the next thing to do was, was a live record. Um, the first call I got from my manager was when it went to number one. Um, and... He said, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah, you're number one. And I couldn't believe it, obviously. <laughs> and then it seemed only a couple of months later where he, another call, he goes, are you sitting down? I said, again? He said, I think you ought to this time. So he said, um, you've just sold more than Tapestry by Carol King, which is the biggest selling record of all time. <laughs> wow. um, I said, wow. you're kidding me. And... <laughs> And that's when I started to get very nervous because <laughs> now this was something. It's okay to be number one for a few weeks. Um, I could that was that was fantastic, and more than I could have ever wished for. Um, but now to be the biggest of something, it's like Cameron Crowe. They asked Cameron Crowe. Someone said in um, one of those biographies, 
What happened to Peter Frampton? He said, well, what happened to Peter Frampton is he got strapped to the nose cone of a rocket. They shot him off to the moon. When he got there, he found that there was nobody else there. <laughs> and uh, it's a... <laughs> but, but the thing is, there was nobody else there to ask advice either. And that's, I think, something that being a solo artist, um, you know, those people around you that benefit um, uh, from your success have their own agenda. And they don't necessarily tell you what's good for you. They tell you what's good for them. Hmm. So um, it, was, um, it was a very difficult time for me after that because I knew that, it was going to be very difficult to compete with myself at this level. It's okay, all right, it's okay if I had a, a number two record, um, you know, okay, so it doesn't, didn't go to number one, but at least it got up there. But, um, but uh, to, to uh, uh, compete with the biggest selling record of all time was, was daunting to say yeah, the least sure. and very depressing. <laughs> wow. Um, I was a student at Belmont University in Nashville back in the 90s, and I remember you came and did a songs and stories kind of thing there one evening. And Oh, with Gordon? With, yeah, Gordon, with Gordon Kennedy, yes. Gordon yes, Kennedy, yes, yeah. 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 And I, I think I remember you saying at that event that Show Me the Way and Baby I Love Your Way were both written on the same day. Am I remembering that right? Yes. So wow. you're probably the rare human who can pinpoint the single most productive day of his life. I'd, lo <laughs> I'd love to hear that exactly, story. Exactly, right. Um, and I'm still trying to work out how I did that. Um, so I think it was Raisin Bran. It wasn't cornflakes when I got up. But anyway, so um, yeah, I was in the Bahamas. I was uh, there to write for three weeks um, to write the Frampton record because you didn't have much time in those days. And because um, you were touring, 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 writing, recording. Touring, 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 writing, recording. And, <laughs> um, and it just kept on going like that. And um, so I'm down there. And uh, <clears throat> Alvin Lee uh, from 10 Years After and his wife, I saw them at the baggage claim in, in uh, Nassau in the Bahamas because that's where I went down to be alone to write. But now I'm not alone. So now for the first two weeks of my three weeks there, I don't remember too much because I was hanging out with Alvin. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, but the third week I had eight days left and I had to write, yeah, I had to write a whole album. So yeah, this is going to work. Right. So anyway, I thought I better get my skates on. So I, I picked up an acoustic, uh, that first morning, uh, of my last week. And, uh, Within about 20 minutes, I was messing around with the tuning, different tuning, and, and came up with the chords to Show Me The Way chorus. And um, so within about half an hour, I had written um, most of it um, uh, musically and a verse and a chorus um, lyrically. Hmm. And I thought, well... I could, I could write the rest of these lyrics now, but I think I better get on to something else quick because I need to catch up. So yeah. um, I think I had lunch. I, I was on the beach, so I went for a quick swim, came back in, picked up the guitar, took it outside this time and was sitting under a palm tree. It's getting a bit later. And uh, um, 
again, I stopped messing around with my guitar and, and put it back to regular tuning, I think, and um, came up with the, the intro to Baby I Love Your Way. And then just started singing that melody. And so by about 4.35, as the sun was starting to set, um, I uh, noticed that the shadows were moving across the page. And there's the lyrics right there. I just wrote what happened, basically. I wrote yeah. what I was doing, why I was there, um, and thinking about my girlfriend who wasn't there. And that's the same for, for both of the songs. Um, they, were, they, were both, um, they were both about uh, my girlfriend at the time and um, who I really wanted to be with. how those two songs came about in the same wow. day that's that's amazing <laughs> that's incredible that is a productive day <laughs> <laughs> um you know thanks to do you feel like we do you you're probably the artist who's most associated with the talk box and, and i'm curious about how you first were introduced um to that piece of gear and then kind of how that plays into um how you're creating a song versus how you use technology and say you know producing or presenting a song um yeah the the talk box um I didn't have a talk box when we first recorded or started playing Do You Feel. Um, it wasn't until, um, well, the, it was on the All Things Must Pass sessions when um, Pete Drake, the pedal steel player from the A-Team in Nashville here, um, was asked to come over and play some pedal steel for George. He'd played on Nashville Skyline for Bob um, Dylan and... Um, they had written If Not For You together. And um, that and about probably five or six, maybe no, five others, um, George wanted pedal steel on. So um, Pete came over, lovely man, till the day we lost, lost him. He was always a dear friend. And um, in a slow moment, he just, he said, check this out. So he's sitting literally two feet away from me, facing me. We were both set up that way at, at Abbey Road Studios. And um, he gets out this little box and uh, puts, put, plugs in somewhere here, plugs the pedal steel in there. Then at the very end, he starts putting a, this clear tube in one thing and then putting it in his mouth. And then before I could say anything else, the pedal steel was singing to me out of his mouth. Uh, it's actually on the audio of this moment, I can't believe it, but it is, is on YouTube. Um, and it's where Pete is playing the talk box and George is saying something and I'm laughing in the background. <laughs> and um, it was just amazing. Everybody just couldn't believe it, you know. So, And uh, I, I had heard a similar sound to this much earlier on in my life, Radio Luxembourg was a station that, from Luxembourg in Europe would, would um, be able to be picked up. It had good rock and roll, American rock and roll, but their call letters were um, uh, Fabulous 208, and it was in the 
you know, it was that sort of tox box sound. Right. And so this completed the circle for me because I'd always said, how do they do that? Being a gadget freak, always. So now I found this. I said to Pete, how, where do I get one? <laughs> and he said, well, I made this one myself. So I went back um, and later I moved to America a couple of years later. And that's when... Um, Bob Heil, who started making the Heil talk box for Joe Walsh, um, uh, he gave, uh, Bob Heil gave me a talk box for Christmas. He gave it to me in 73, and then I started um, learning how to use it, and the first place we decided to put it in was the end of Do You Feel? And the very first night we did that, um, we all felt the whole room in front of us, in front of the stage, it seemed like everybody moved forwards five or six inches. Wow. <laughs> it was like instant. I felt wow. this thud on the stage as everyone just like pushed straight. It was instantaneous. As soon as that sound came out, everybody went berserk. They couldn't, they didn't know what it was. Now we, we hear auto-tune every day. But in right. those days, this was analog. You had to make this sound yourself. Um, no synthesizer or anything. So, yeah, it's, I always loved it and still do because of its humor. Um, it's funny. It's a funny sound. Um, and uh, no matter what you say through it, um, comes out sounding funny. <laughs> and that's what I, you know, uh, Joe Walsh had used it, and most people use it for its sound, not to speak or sing with it. But I wanted to do what Pete Drake was doing. And I wanted to do, and many times I've done fabulous through my talk box, just because I could. And um, so, so it's, it was um, a very exciting time for me. It was a realization that this very cheap, if I'd had to pay for it, it was only $150. But I didn't. <laughs> I got given it, which was wonderful. And um, so you too, for $150, could have, could have done that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, Though the singles from Frampton Comes Alive are still mainstays on rock radio today, your highest charting single came with I'm In You from the follow-up album of the same name. mentioned how coming off such an enormous success was 
daunting and lonely in some ways and, and very much in uncharted waters. Talk about the specifically the songwriting process when it came time to, to gear up for, for that follow-up and, and what that experience was like uh, for you of trying to write uh, what was going to come after this phenomenal success. Writing I'm In You um, was not an enjoyable thing for me. I had, um, I had written quite a few pieces for it, not necessarily all completed, but I had it on a um, cassette, um, and I went down uh, to Mexico with, with Cameron Crowe um, and his girlfriend and my girlfriend. Uh, we went down for 10 days. I think we, we went down as Las Brisas, and, um, and then we, we went uh, to Mexico City for a day just to say we'd been there, I think. And, <laughs> um, but while I was uh, in Mexico... Um, I left the cassette there somewhere. So I have all these ideas on there that um, I can't remember. And so that was the beginning of my songwriting, which didn't, didn't bode well for the future. And um, so I started to, to try and put them back together, the, what I could remember and everything. Um, but I also knew that the amount of time it took to write all the songs on um, uh, Comes Alive was six years, if you count hmm. Humble Pie for Shine On, and then m- m- my um, four solo records um, before uh, before Comes Alive came out. Yeah. And it was ba- basically cherry-picking the best songs from each album, which became the stage act. And um, so... Um, my, in hindsight, my feeling uh, about doing "I'm in You" straight away, I that was couldn't have been further from the truth because I didn't really want to. Um, I needed more time, you yeah. know. To uh, at that point, I should have got the best songwriters in the world to come and sit with me, and we should have written some great songs. But that didn't happen, and. Um, I was pushed into um, uh, writing in probably within six months. Uh, we were back in the studio, and I really didn't have anything that I liked. You know, I had I'm In You, which I'd written from just the, um, the excitement. I think I was inspired to write that from the excitement of the success of Comes Alive and also my relationship with my girlfriend at the time. And um, there, was, there was really no pressure at that time because no one was expecting a new record right now. And mm. um, so I, I just wrote out of fun, out of enjoyment. Um, yeah. And I find that I'm not one of those writers that can meet you at 10 o'clock till 2 and we come out with a song or 10 to 1 or whatever it is. Uh, I can't <laughs> right. do that. Um, I have to wait until I'm playing something and all of a sudden I get inspired and something happens and I'm, uh, I, oh, wait a second, that piece there. And then I start zeroing in on that piece and then I might have a title and then, then I'll, I'll uh, get right into it that way. But um, uh, no, to, to only have six months to 
come up with the follow-up music to to Comes Alive was um, not a great feeling. That's fascinating. Uh, we, we talk uh, a lot of times about, you know, sort of like when a band makes a first album and then what it feels like to make the second album and all the time that they have to sort of write and create and hone that first album uh, versus the second album. And it's it seems even more pronounced when you're talking about making this live record, which in a sense is almost like a, a career collection at that point, and then having to follow that up. It's it's The pressure's even higher. Um and and following that in 1979 though you you hit the top 20 again with I can't stand it no more which you know because of the drum mix on that song it almost kind of sounds like the Frampton version of disco The musical times were changing, and I think again about you know time and process and what it means to making a record. And in this time, you're going through a long recovery process after a terrible car accident. Um, I'd like to hear about that experience and how that played into you know the creative process for yet another record. Uh, the car accident was sort of the end of a uh, that was the end of an era for me. That was um, everything came to a screeching halt, literally, <laughs> and. Um, I had uh, a lot of time to think where I hadn't. I, I was just constantly either in the studio writing or on the road. So this gave me time to, uh, to collect my thoughts, um, work out what just happened, and um, where we go from here. Well, I did realize at that point that business-wise things were, had gone astray. And... Um, it was time for me to sort this out. So that was the beginning of the end of my relationship with uh, my manager, D'Anthony. Um, I've always been a survivor. Um, I've never given up. Uh, there's been moments when I thought I wanted to, but I've always just brushed myself off, got back up and started again. Well, this time, for me, I didn't know how long it would take, but this was going to be the beginning of another period in my life where I was going to have to pay my dues all over again. Right, even writing for the uh, Breaking All the Rules album, which was uh, uh, the one after Where I Should Be, that was that was probably the most enjoyable record I'd written since um, Frampton because I had great players on it and I had written um, some, some good songs. We'd chosen some good covers and um, um, I was really looking forward to playing that and also playing with Luke, Steve Lukather and, and Jeff Picaro on that was wonderful too. So that was, that was a great period. I did have time and uh, I took the time to do it, um, but that was the first record that... I made under my own auspices. It was, I had no manager, well, didn't have D at that point, and things were under my, much more under my control.
even though you found success with that, the the title track was you know fell just shy of the top ten on Billboard's Rock Chart. You had uh, a top five mainstream rock single with the synth heavy lying in the mid '80s. Um, but by the time we reach the '90s, we only see one studio record during that whole decade uh, with the album titled Peter Frampton and its top ten mainstream rock single, A Day in the Sun. Um, was there a reason that you kind of pulled back on the amount of music that you were releasing in that particular era? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, first of all, um, uh, you know, I had been dropped by A&M Records in 81 or 82, around there, after the Art of Control record. And... Um, uh, I don't blame them, to be honest. I, I can't stand that record. Um, but hmm. I, I realized after that that I needed to... I had been working nonstop um, since I was 16. Um, I was now 30. And um, it was time for a break. So um, that's when um, I got married. Um, my wife and I had our first child. Um, and then... Um, five years later, uh, second one. So it was a time of, of just um, staying home, um, trying to get, gather up uh, my thoughts and, and work out a game plan for where I'm going from here. Hmm. You know, we talked about him a bit before, but one of our previous guests on the show was Gordon Kennedy. Um, and I know he's collaborated extensively with you on more recent albums, including Now Thank You, Mr. Churchill, and 2014's Hummingbird in a Box, Songs for Ballet. And, you know, uh, I feel like a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think of Peter Frampton and ballet going together. So I'd love <laughs> to hear more about the background of that project. Well, I was living in Cincinnati at the time, and um, a family friend said... Um, the head of the Cincinnati Ballet would like to do use a couple of your songs, um, I think three, um, and do uh, a two-person dance, a pas de deux. Um, these were songs that were already written, they'd chosen, whatever, from my catalogue. And um, when I finally saw the in-house DVD, um, it just blew me away that how amazing to see someone choreograph um, these beautiful dances, dance moves, um, to uh, my music and some of mine and Gordon's. Nothing more was said. And then I get a call from the head of the ballet in Cincinnati. And she said, would you like to come down and see us rehearse? I said, I'd love to. I walk into where they're rehearsing, their, their room there, and there are people leaping 20 feet in the air. <laughs> 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 and uh, with no strings attached. Uh, there were some of the best dancers from the entire world were in that room. I could feel the air move in the room as they were, 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 were doing their thing. And it was, wow. it's just pretty amazing to watch, especially when these, uh, the, the caliber of dancer was so incredibly high. And um, so anyway, afterwards... She said, well, I've got, a, I've got another idea. I said, oh, okay, yeah. She said, look, uh, we'd like to use more of your music and do a whole show out of it, you know, a whole evening. I said, oh, wow, well, just let me know what songs you want to use and I'll get you the, um, 
the tracks. She said, no, 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 no. We would like you to pick songs that you think would be good for us out of your stage act. We'll choreograph them, and then you'll play them. You'll play on stage behind the dancers. And I thought this was a <laughs> tremendous idea. So I thought, well, that's great. And then I got so excited, I said, well, how about we do some of the old material, but I said, why don't I go and write 20 minutes of new music? And then I'd realize what I just said. <laughs> and so, so anyway, uh, she said, really, would you do that? And I said, yes. So I couldn't wait to get out of there. I, I called Gordon on my, my phone. I said, help. <laughs> <laughs> and then I told him what I'd got us into. And it was just the best. Um, wow. uh, best project. I just moved to right after that I'd moved to Nashville got my first uh, uh, place here and uh, no furniture except one table a small stool two cats and Gordon and um, <laughs> we we basically wrote all the songs on my laptop uh, using my laptop and and some drum beats and stuff like that wow. amazing well that looks like your famous black Gibson Les Paul on the cover of Hummingbird in a Box, which I believe is the one we see on, on Frampton Comes Alive. And I understand that that guitar was thought lost for a long time, but found its way back to you in recent years. What, what happened? Um, well, we were playing, when we played uh, South America in 1980, um, we were just getting ready to leave. Uh, we had a day off. So our last date in... Um, uh, in South America was uh, Caracas, Venezuela, and our next date was in um, uh, Central America um, in Panama, Noriega's Panama at the time. So we flew on um, to Panama for the day off, and the equipment went on a cargo plane, and it never got off the runway. It crashed. Um, and of course, all the equipment was gone. So. Um, but also uh, people died, so we didn't really hmm. think too much about the equipment at the time. Um, you know, there were people that lost their lives, so uh, it was just devastating. Uh, we couldn't play the date in Panama because it was a, um, we were playing a stadium and we had no equipment, so there was no way. Yeah. They couldn't even, they went into a shop to try and get some guitar strings. On one side of the shop, they had bridles and saddles. And on the other side, they had some guitar strings. That's yeah. the kind of thing we were dealing with. So right. there was no gig. Um, so um, realizing now that my guitar is lost, uh, as well as all the other stuff, um, we go back uh, to America. And uh, basically, there's a whole story how we had to get, we had no passports, so we had to get, um, it was very difficult to get back in. But anyway, um, we did. And then my, uh, my guitar tech went down a week later to Caracas to look at the uh, damage and to see if there was anything left. There were a couple of Marshall cabinets, speaker cabinets, and nothing else. And he said to the guard who was guarding the debris, um, were there any guitars? He said, no, no guitars. Uh, well, the tail broke off and all the guitars were in the tail and they were okay. They were a little singed, but they weren't destroyed. So 30 years later, I, I get an email from someone in Holland uh, 
Um, well, first of all, I looked, opened the email. There's a dozen photos of my guitar now. Hmm. And I screamed because I knew it was mine. And they said, this has been found in um, Car- the island of Carousel, Curacao, and, um, which is just off the coast of Venezuela. And um, so long story short, um, this man had uh, been playing my guitar in uh, Venezuela for 15 years and then thought he was getting a... People were starting to ask him too many questions about the guitar. So he sold Hmm. it to this guy in Curacao who stuck it in the closet and then his son was born and then so the next generation comes up and his son says to him one day, Dad, that old guitar in the closet, can I take it to a luthier so we can get it so I can play it? Because it won't play. It doesn't play well. He said, okay, yeah. take it in. The kid brought the guitar in. The luthier opened up the guitar. His eyes got as big as houses. And he didn't say anything. And the kid said, could you make this playable? He said, yeah, sure, kid. Leave it with me overnight. Um, I'll have it fixed for you in the morning. The kid left. The guy knew exactly what it was. Called his friend in Holland. and Because it's a Dutch island, Curacao. And... Um, he sent him the pictures and he said, you've got to send these to Frampton. I'm sure this is Frampton's guitar. And uh, so that was 30 years um, after. That was 2010 then. And it took two years to get it back um, wow. because no one wanted to bring it to me because they thought I was going to have them arrested for stolen merchandise, which was yeah. the furthest thing from my mind possible. And um, so one day we got a three-camera team in a hotel room in Nashville and invited these people up from, from Curacao. And um, he brought it into the room and um, I pulled it out of the case and there it was. It was mine. I got it back. I, was, um, wow. I mean, that, that, those, it's a fairy story. Those things don't happen. That's, that's incredible because, I, I mean, Thousands upon thousands of people who have never met you are excited you got that guitar back. So I can't imagine how excited you were to get the guitar <laughs> back when strangers around the world uh, were excited <laughs> to hear it. Um, so last year you released All Blues, which is not only your first blues album, but your first album of cover songs as well. Now, shortly before that, however, you released Acoustic Classics, which uh, featured acoustic versions of some of your best known songs. Why was it important for you to showcase some of the hits from your catalog in a, a different way? Um, I think I just wanted to um, uh, show people what they sounded like when they were just written. Um, I think that there's been um, so much on uh, social media now whereby you just see one person and there they are and they're playing a cover or they're playing one of their songs um, and it's so great to watch, especially when some I see someone do um, one of their huge hits that has a huge production, and then you see just acoustic, you know, and you realize that you can play a great song on just an acoustic or just in a, a piano and voice. It doesn't need a great production. A great song is always a great song, no matter if it's on an acoustic or if it's done with an orchestra. It doesn't matter. It's got to be a great song to start with. And it's so cool to hear those songs in a, in a fresh way, too. It's uh, it, it reminds you of their timelessness. Well, thank you. Well, 
Peter, this has been uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us some insights into your career and your songwriting. Uh, it's been a real pleasure for us. Same here, and uh, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.